Thank you so much for joining today, The Alchemist. Does this mean that Rabbeinu Bahaya believed in alchemy? <laughs> Is this the proof that our Torah sages were not as smart as we think they are? That they believed in myths and magic? No. <laughs> Sorry if that disappoints you. Not really any much less than the best-selling book, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, the Brazilian writer that sold over, I think, 65 million copies in nearly 60 countries. And it's not really a book about alchemy. So many of you read the book. Come on, it's like a, it's an inspirational book. It's, it's about this, you know, Andalusian shepherd, Santiago, and he, he's uh, looking f to follow his dreams. And, and he's... Uh, He's got these visions and dreams. And, and he ends up finding riches that were far greater than what he could have possibly imagined. And it's, it's an inspirational book. And today's class has nothing to do with it. I just borrowed the title and some of the graphics. Because Rabbeinu Bachaya, some thousand years ago, chose to make the alchemist a prime paradigm to illustrate his point. He's going to frame the benefits of betochen, of trust in Hashem, by virtue of the successes that people longed for, hoped for, dreamed of. The poster boy, at least in the medieval times, the alchemist. So no, it's not about alchemy, but as we mentioned yesterday during the Middle Ages, the idea of alchemy was very attractive. But in every age, there have been get-rich-quick schemes. They're always very attractive. Maybe in today's day and age, some of those Ponzi schemes you heard about would be an example. And you think to yourself, these people, they got it made in the shade. They don't have a worry a concern. They're printing money. Think of the alchemist, if you will, like the counterfeiter who's printing money. Foolproof. He's never getting caught. Is he at ease? Does he have that proverbial peace of mind we talked about yesterday? I mean, presumably so. He doesn't have a worry under the sky. Comes Rabbeinu Bechaya and says, that the person who has betochen is better poised to have peace of mind. The person who trusts in Hashem is more fortunate than that proverbial alchemist. And although the details are antiquated, the ideal and ideas are not. They're not dated at all. In fact, they resonate with the exact same kind of meaning with the exact same kind of lessons that they did at the time when this was originally written. Let's take a look and let's read together. Originally, Rabbeinu Bachaya was trying to convey to you that if you will succeed at developing full trust in Hashem, that you leave everything in Hashem's hands and you don't worry about a thing because I trust Him. 
He's taking care of me. The placing of trust in Hashem in and of itself is such a powerful act of faith that it can serve to bring forth extraordinary blessings. And we've richly developed this idea, at least in theory, theologically, we should be seeing a picture of what betochen looks like emerge. Of course, the challenge, and this will be an ongoing challenge, it's probably something we're always going to have to struggle with, is realigning ourselves to that vision. It's kind of snapping back into focus because invariably we start to wander. Just like the road and the car driving on it and slowly the wheels begin to move and you have to have them adjusted periodically. They call it a wheel alignment. Some people visit a chiropractor and they have to have a back adjustment. Things are fine, you know, just like if you leave it to its own devices, invariably things start to get a little off kilter. It's not really that much different with our own betochen, with our own trustful faith in Hashem. If you're thinking about this, if you're studying it daily, you're constantly bringing it back into sharp focus. Otherwise, you, you veer a little and you have to constantly bring it back. And you have to take the time to contemplate because as we've learned, this is all about mindfulness. We discussed the Mamanadian idea that's articulated in the Mora Navuchim, in the Guide to the Perplexed, of the mind and the consciousness being the most powerful tool available to us. That it's a mechanism through which we can achieve connection to God and when we have that connection with God, Nothing can touch us. So Rabbeinu Bechaya tells us that if you have that, you have the peace of mind the whole world wants. It's an incredible benefit. That's not why we should trust in Hashem. But, you know, when you become aware of the fringe benefits, it doesn't seem that daunting anymore. In fact, it should become extremely attractive to us. You should say, I want this. I want to live with peace of mind. I want to live with a sense of inner tranquility. I want to be rid of my anxieties. You can, just like the alchemist. Oh, actually, you can do it better than the alchemist can. Ten times better. The Sefer, the book continues now, with Rabbeinu Bechaya's illustration in ten strokes of how the person who merits to achieve full success, absolute betochen in faith, is going to be better poised and to achieve greater peace of mind than even the proverbial alchemist or its equivalent in any particular day and age. Take a listen. If you're reading along in the book, we're on page 14. Va'oid, and furthermore, ki habeteach be'elokim, the one who trusts in God, yeshle alav yisrein, he has a superiority. Da'asorod vorim, in ten details. 
or in 10 ways. <laughs> the way people say, 10 times as much. Here's the beginning. Trilasam. It starts like this. Baal Hachimia, the chemist, and this lends credibility to what we talked about yesterday, that the word actually is from the word chemistry. It would be a Greek word then, and it's modified in Arabic by having an al in the front, al-chemist. So Hachimia, this chemist, and again, that's what people were thinking of in terms of the chemistry of the day, the technology of the day. The chemist needs special things to be able to do his or her work. The Pas Lechem, one of the commentaries on the Shara B'tochen, he says this, what special things are we talking about? He says, well, you need Eze Samim Yeduim. Rabbeinu B'chaya says, I don't know if the alchemy is or isn't real, or who knows if maybe someday we'll learn how to change metals. It's not relevant. The point is, you would need some kind of ingredients. Even if you look at it in a mythical way, you still need ingredients. Ve'ezekelim, you still need some kind of mechanism, whether it's a crucible or whatever else that somebody might use, you need ingredients and you need tools, which are special, suited for this particular vocation. Uviltam, without those tools, lo yigmar hadavar, you're never gonna actually finish what you're doing. I mean, you can maybe start the process, maybe you can achieve something, but you're not going to get it done without the right tools. I find it interesting that the Marpil and Nefesh, another commentary on the Shara B'tochen, he goes into the details of, of what these might be. He talks about uh, various leads or other materials, mercury. And he says, you need to have the proper tools, the kalim. But if you don't have your ingredients and your your tools with you, he says, you can't do anything. <laughs> so I don't know if they had different views of alchemy or chemistry, but the Paslachim saying, you won't get it done, and the Marpel and Nefer saying, you won't do anything. The point is, suppose you had this wisdom, this knowledge, this talent, and wherewithal, this ability, you still need certain things to be able to achieve it. And because you need those kalim and samim, as they're called, those ingredients and those tools or mechanisms, machinery, to be able to do it, so as such, you're not going to get it done without them. And because of that, there is a bit of a concern. It's not as if you're worryless, as long as I have my vessels, as long as I have my machines, as long as I have my materials, I can get this done. What if they take away my tools? What if I'm bereft of the raw materials or the bullion that's necessary? Well, that's a problem. And he says, 
you would have to come to the conclusion that lo makom. You would have to come to the conclusion that neither would necessarily be available to you in every time and in every place. So, you know how to make a living. You can make magic. <laughs> you can turn iron into silver or gold. That's nice. You still need iron. You still need your laboratory. You still need your tools, your machines. And otherwise, you're not going to be able to create the magic. You're not going to have the gold. So, you are what they call in Yiddish, afarzicheter, guaranteed. You will be taken care of, regardless of what happens. You need more money, no problem. You print more money. Yeah, you still need your printing press. And you still need ink. And you still need electricity. Or whatever else it makes for your particular key to success. Maybe a printing uh, counterfeit printing machine is a bad metaphor. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar never suggested, God forbid, that somebody should do something criminal. Alchemy is not criminal. If you can actually create gold, great, good for you. What's the difference if somebody digs in the ground and finds it, or if somebody can create it? If you got gold, you got gold. The point isn't to do something which is devious. Maybe I shouldn't even mention Ponzi scheme. These are criminal activities. The alchemist is the perfect metaphor because he hurts or harms no one. He does nothing illegal. And he's guaranteed to be able to make a living in any time and in any place. Well, so long as he can find the raw materials. So long as he's got his gear with him. However, says Rabbeinu Bechayah, the alchemist, he's got peace of mind. No question about it. Why shouldn't he have peace of mind? It's easy for him to create riches. It's easy for him to provide for himself. He doesn't have to worry. But he still needs to do something. And he still needs to be sure that the materials are in place. However, the peace of mind that is possible when you have betochen, v'habeter belekim, tarpoi muvtochloi, his needs, his livelihood, his sustenance is guaranteed. It could be available from just about anything that already is in existence. The Paslechem interestingly says, for many cause or reason. Kalayma, in other words. Anything that exists, that could become the reason for his sustenance. Very important message here. The person who has trust in Hashem is not relying on miracles. We ruled that out before. That's not a good idea. The person who's trusting in Hashem is relying on the fact that Hashem will provide for him, but he will make the mechanism. He'll go through the motions of creating the keli, the vessel, the envelope through which the blessing will come. How will Hashem send him his blessing? I don't know. Maybe he'll be a printer today. Maybe he'll be a custodian today. Maybe he'll be the person to discover gold, silver, zinc, or platinum. I don't know how he's going to make a living. He doesn't know how. Maybe somebody will suddenly realize that he has incredible ability. Maybe you remember a couple of years ago there was a homeless man. He's got a bit of a voice. 
a radio kind of voice. And the homeless man was on the street speaking. I don't remember the details. And somebody drove by, somebody drive, drove by and they happened to hear this guy's voice. They say, hey, you got a voice. You could be, you could be uh, useful. Well, postscript, the man got this amazing job and his whole life changed overnight. So what's the lesson? If you have a fancy voice, use it. No, that's not the lesson. <laughs> you know, I used to be a, a security guard. You know, one of the guys in the airport is responsible for getting you to take your shoes off and put your keys in the bin. He had an amazing voice. I used to fly to New York fairly often to the OHEL, and I, I came, this was, he, he was a particular terminal, there was one airline I would sometimes fly with, and he was always there. And I said to him one day, I said, you had an amazing voice, you, you, could, like, you could get a job in radio. And he said, well, yeah, maybe. But I don't think he ever got a job in radio, because every time I was there, he was, that was the job he was doing. He was just walking back and forth and say, put your keys in the bin, keys in the bin, shoes off now, shoes off now, keys in the bin. So how come a radio announcer or somebody who's involved in mass media didn't happen to fly there and happen to notice? I happen to notice. I can't give him a job. And he wasn't homeless. Because we believe that this is all in the hands of Hashem Yisbarach. And it looks like things happen in a natural fashion. But everything is being orchestrated by God. And God can use anything for you to make a living. Wherever you are, there's some kind of existence. Somebody can offer you some kind of task. You'll always have what you need. The person who has betochen does not live with a sense of tranquility because he believes he or she will be rich. Who says, I'm supposed to be a millionaire? But HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Almighty God, promises that he is zonum afarnas. He sustains. Sustains means keeps body and soul together. Gives you your basic needs. Every one of us will be provided his or her basic needs. We will have what it takes to make a living. Didn't say opulence. Didn't say a week in Jamaica. Didn't say a four, four, four cars, a garage. Didn't say any of those things. You'll be able to get by. I don't want to just get by. But don't just get by. Live a life of holiness. Live a life of mission. Live a life of purpose. Do you think you take your four-car garage with you to heaven? You think you take your wardrobe or your vacations? Live a life that's pulsating with meaning and piety and, 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 and uplifting energy and positive inspiration. And that's within the, the reach of each and every one of us. So what I do need is to keep body and soul together. I do have my just basic needs that have to be sustained physically, materially, the biological needs. HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises that each and every one of us can be sustained. The master of the universe is called Hazanu Mufarnas, the one who sustains, the one who provides sustenance, Parnasa. So I have to believe that. And if I believe that, not just believe it, I trust in Hashem, that Hashem said He'll provide for me and Hashem loves me, and therefore I am going to have what I need, I don't have a worry in the world. Do I have something that must be done now, then I'll do it. And if I don't have something that must be done now, I will focus on doing 
what Hashem wants me to do. Whether it's Torah study, whether it's the recitation of a psalm or another prayer, whether it's an act of loving kindness and care and consideration, there's always something to do. A Torah Jew should never be bored. Me bored. Either you're studying Torah, or you're praying, or you're doing a mitzvah. Entertained? <laughs> what do you need to be entertained? You need to be meaningful. You need to be purposeful. And it is impossible for a Yid to be empty if he or she lives a life of meaning. And there's always stuff to do. And there's always somebody who needs help. And you're always able to make a difference. But I'm worried. Yeah, what are you worried about? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm worried I, I have to make a living. Of that? That you trust in Hashem. But how will he do it? I, I don't have my horse and wagon. And, and I'm a coach person, so I don't have a horse. How am I going to make a living? Hashem needs your horse and wagon for you to make a living. Oh, I got no worries. I'm an alchemist. Really, where's your, um, where's your machinery? Oh, I, I have to get it. I mean, I'm just going to find some raw material. But I'm going to be okay. These are easy things to find. I know where my machinery is. I'm going to be... The person who has faith doesn't even have that concern. I don't have to worry how. It's not my business to worry how. I do whatever I can, whatever I must, to make an envelope in Teva in nature, and the rest in the Rabbi Nishleilam's hands. The actual bracha comes from Hashem. You don't need to have any anxiety in the world whatsoever. So what, what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar has done for you is he's illustrated mind you, through the illusory lenses of, uh, of, of a, a, a mythical reality. But that's not the point. He's illustrated for you that the person who everybody would want to be, the dream everybody would love to live, meaning that you have whatever it takes. You have whatever, you, you have all that you need. You can always provide for yourself. Says Rabbeinu Bachaya, you can always provide for yourself and therefore you have peace of mind. Betochen will give you greater peace of mind. Because you can always provide for yourself still necessitates some kind of tool or raw material. Betochen, I don't have to have concerns about anything. There's always some way, there's always something. Hashem worries. I don't have to. And this is the meaning of muvtach loy. He is assured, guaranteed. Mikol siba misiba soilam. However Hashem is going to choose to give me what I need today, that's His business. It's not my job to pray to Hashem how He should send me my sustenance. It's my job to study Torah and to pray that Hashem send me His sustenance. And then... I just wait for Hashem's deliverance. Do what I can, create the natural means, but don't worry and have no anxiety or fear for even a moment. Because as we learned, that anxiety is essentially a lack of trust. The lack of trust equals missing faith. And that equals an inability to actualize the bracha, the blessings that were supposed to be mine. Powerful stuff.
How is Rabbeinu Bechaya uh, so sure of this? How does he know that that's the way a Jew is supposed to go through life? He says, easy. The scripture says it. As the scripture says, This is a verse that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Laman This is about the manna that the Jewish people ate for four decades during their desert sojourns, so that he would make you know that a person does not live by bread alone. Instead, rather, a person lives by whatever comes from the mouth of Hashem. That's how a person lives. So meaning that the purpose of the manna was to communicate to you, to make known to you, to me, to us, to our ancestors, but through our ancestors to us. The person doesn't only get sustained by virtue of bread, but rather whatever comes from the mouth of Hashem. That's how we live. So the Kihad book says, and I'll read from it, and then tell you why I think this is entirely off base. Quote, page 15. In the desert, the Jews were not sustained by God in the usual way, through the consumption of regular food. First of all, that's an oxymoron. The Jews were not sustained by God in the usual way through the consumption of food. This, those are two points. If bread would have fallen, literal, actual bread, or bread would have miraculously sprouted from the ground like water did, then they would have had to use regular consumption and God would still not be sustaining them in the natural way. It is not correct to conflate the nature of manna and the fact that it came in a miraculous fashion. God could have sent carbohydrates from heaven or carbohydrates from the clouds in the same way that he sent this heavenly spiritual food that melted into their being and did not require any kind of digestion. It had no toxins. It had no extraneous material that the body had to process, filter, and push out. Those are two details. When the slav, when the quail came, it was also not the usual manner. It's never happened before, and it's never happened after. When the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, and suddenly 70 trees grew out of nowhere, and they ate its fruit, that also wasn't the usual way in which God sustains us. But there was digestion. And, oh, by the way, until the manna fell, they were eating the matzah that they took out of Mitzrayim. Yeah, the dough that they were pounding so it wouldn't rise and ended up getting baked, so to speak, by the heat of the sun. That matzah, or its morsels, continued to sustain them for like a month. Are you going to tell me that's normal? Of course not. Was it regular food? We have no reason to think that it wasn't. <laughs> they had like a Mary Poppins bag, you know, they just, just, just a bag that never stopped giving. They just kept putting in their hands into the matzah bag, and matzah kept coming out. And I would assume they had to go to the washroom because they were eating matzah, bread, unleavened bread that came from the ground in Egypt. But then, when the manna fell from heaven, 
they were eating these crystals. And these crystals were perfected food, the kind of food that doesn't require digestion because it was perfect. And when we ingest things from outside of us, there's an immediate conflict, a conflict. The body rejects the things you're putting in it. In fact, much of the food that we're absorbing, that we're ingesting, is toxic for us. And if we can't break it down and turn it into plasma or fat or some kind of cell, cellular material that becomes a part of our physical body, then we're going to have a deposit, something that gets stuck and stays in the body. That's bad news, bears. By the way, some of these non-natural products are very dangerous to eat because if you eat large volumes of them, you have deposits that get stuck in your body and heaven forfend that could cause some terrible stuff to happen. So they say, eat natural foods. It has calories, don't eat as much. Instead of eating magic food that doesn't have calories but that brings you all kinds of side effects, it's called a side effect, it's an effect. Negative effects because the body can't even break it down Forget about absorb it. Eat natural things from the world that Hashem created that the body can break down. Extract the little bits of energy, that which can actually assimilate it into your own cellular structure. And the rest of it's got to get pushed out. And if the mechanism to push it out doesn't work, you're in big trouble. So the manna didn't have any of that. It wasn't things that came from the ground. Everything earthly has to be refined. This is true in a physical and material sense. It's also true in a spiritual sense. In fact, it's first true in a spiritual sense, and that's why it's like that way in a material sense. We all have heard of the term tikkun olam. Tikkun olam is a term that comes from Luriana Kabbalah. It has nothing to do with social justice. It is not the woke culture. Tikkun olam is Aramaic, and it means to perfect to rectify or perfect the world. Tikkuna are sometimes ornaments or even makeup. It's the way you perfect something. It's the way you kind of create perfect symmetry. The world has all the raw materials, but it's not in concert. Our job is letakin. Our job is to rectify, to perfect. How do you perfect? Well, it's just like you take flour or let's be more original. If you take grain out of the ground or put a grain in the ground and then eventually stalks grow and it's got grain. Klum Adam Kaisis, as the Gemara says, can you eat grain? You're not a cow. So somebody has to do the work. So the Gemara says the man's job was to toil out there in the fields and then to bring home the harvest. And then his wife would say, thank you, and I'll turn what you brought home into bread now. By she would mill the wheat and turn it into flour and then she would knead the wheat with water or something of alkaline base, and she would then shape it, form it, put other ingredients, and bake it. And guess what happens? You got bread. So that's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for life. In fact, one heretic once asked Rabbi Akiva, if God didn't want men to have a foreskin, why did he make them born with a foreskin? And Rabbi Akiva said, if God wanted men to have bread, why did he make Flour, why didn't he make flour grow from the ground? Or for that matter, why didn't he have bread grow from the ground? Why did he have wheat grow from the ground? And the answer is because we're partners with Hashem. We have to take what Hashem gave us, the raw materials, and perfect it. And this is true on every level. If you take pigment that's found in little tubes and you 
paint a thin layer of it on a canvas in a perfectly choreographed way, you're creating art. If you take sounds, anything that makes sounds, but you arrange those sounds in a particular way, you've made music. If you take words or letters and string them together, you can actually make a meaningful, a poignant, a touching, an inspirational communication. We have to have the material, we have to have the ability to do it, but once you have that material, that ability, then you can move forward and bring it into its state of perfection. So why am I talking about this uh, notion of proverbial tikkun olam? Because tikkun olam requires a lot of sifting. It requires removing the things that don't belong there. Hashem creates a perfect, beautiful world. Our job is to harness and to channel this world so that its perfection becomes evident. Just as the artist has to take the raw materials and turn it into a beautiful painting. That's the perfection of pigment. Our job is perfection of the world. And invariably, there's going to be things we don't use. You know, <laughs> when they first went to outer space, they had these enormous silos of fuselage that were filled with fuel. And they burned at tremendous speed. And by the time they broke the atmosphere and the capsule was able to start orbiting freely, it had no use for those enormous capsules, so it actually had to drop them, get rid of them. I don't know how, but they figured out a way to make sure that these enormous silos of fuselage didn't fall on somebody's head, but instead fell in the Indian Ocean. That's good. Nobody got hurt. They were there merely to deliver. They were the payload. It went to deliver the capsule into outer space. Once the capsule was delivered, you're good to go. A capsule came back to Earth, not that big gleaming white spaceship. All of the different elements of the food which we have to ingest because, because that's the way we ingest the nutrients, that's the way you get, they're all just delivering the payload. And then they end up in the Indian Ocean. I mean, whatever. They fall somewhere with a splash, hopefully not on somebody's head, and you get it out of the body, get rid of it. Do you see what I'm saying? This is tikkun olam. So Hashem creates a world in which we need to perfect things. Nothing in our world is perfect, except for the Torah, because it's godly, because it comes from heaven. Because if it comes from earth, it's flawed. If it comes from heaven, it's perfect. Everything earthly has to be fixed. Unfortunately, we have far too many people who embrace nature, and they try to engineer the Torah. That's tragic. That's taking godly truths and changing them to becoming man-made or human expressions which are faulty at best and oftentimes downright wrong. And then embracing nature, saying, well, if it's nature, it must be good. Says who? Not the Torah. Not Hashem, the creator of nature. He says nature was meant to be harnessed and channeled. It was meant to be fixed and perfected. So, I don't know what he's talking about here when he writes that the Jews were not sustained by God in the usual way. That's true. That should be at a period. Through the consumption of regular food, even if God would have given them regular food, 
it still wouldn't be the usual way. Hashem, A, did not sustain them in the usual way. B, He gave them a non-usual kind of nutrient, a perfect nutrient. Not lechem min ha'aretz, which requires engineering, but lechem min ha'shamayim, which is perfect and simply melted into the body. And then he writes, he then, he sustained them by providing manna which fell freely from heaven. Not entirely accurate, and I'll show you why in a moment. But this is what really got my goat. This illustrates that God is not limited to the natural order. Really. So until the manna fell, you thought God was limited to the natural order. Wow, that's sad. I mean, how did you view the ten plagues as the natural order? How did you view the crossing of the Reed Sea? This is all like a weeks before the manna fell. That's natural order? Oh, uh, since we're talking about miraculous things and God not being limited to the natural order, like why begin with the Exodus? How about um, Abraham being thrown into the fiery furnace? Not in the scripture, but very, very much a part of our tradition. Was that part of the natural order? Abraham going to war against this massively powerful group of armies, an axis of evil, and somehow handily defeating them, at best with a few hundred helpers, at best. That's scripture. Had that happen? That's the natural order? <laughs> like, like, really? We have so many examples of Hashem doing things miraculous, not in the natural order. The manna illustrates that God is not limited to the natural order. The manna illustrates that God can provide for us in any manner He wishes. No, 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 no. That's simply incorrect. The question, however, is, what does the manna illustrate? What is Rabbeinu B'chayah's point here anyway? It should be noted that he doesn't quote the verses about the manna that are found in the book of Exodus. That's found in um, Exodus 16. Instead, he quotes Deuteronomy 8. And, and it really isn't about manna. It's about the Jewish people getting a lecture from Meshach Rabbeinu. Moses says, hey, 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 do you realize what happened? Have you contemplated your circumstances, your survival? Have you learned the lessons from your Sinai sojourns. That's really the context of these words. Why is Rabbeinu Bachaya choosing to quote the words, And the word man is not even mentioned over here. In fact, this verse almost doesn't make sense if you look at it through manna lenses. It's talking about the manna, factually, but the verse doesn't mention manna, and it says, so about, not mentioning, the manna was given to you. Why? Because, if Rabbeinu B'chayah wanted to mention manna, why didn't he start quoting a few words earlier in the verse? Like, He fed you manna, which your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Raphael, did not know. They never heard of this stuff. You never saw it before. And it was all the manna I mean, if the point is manna, with all due respect, 
than he should have quoted manna. Instead, he begins his quote from the words, Laman hodiecha, to make you know. So I'm asking the question now. You're all really intelligent people. I hope you've been following me up to this point. We're trying to understand why Rabbeinu Bechaya is framing his argument with a manna metaphor without mentioning manna and why manna serves to illustrate the point of God being able to provide. And we're getting a lot of confusion here. A story about God wasn't sustaining, we weren't sustained in a natural manner, wasn't consumption of regular food, two different things thrown together, strewn together. He sustained us by providing manna. Maybe you should mention the hydration that we received miraculously called Be'era Shal Miriam. We don't know that it was miraculous water, but it was water. And the water somehow was always available until it wasn't available after Miriam died. And that's a story in and of itself where Moses has to find the source of water and it doesn't go the way he planned. He was supposed to speak to the stone, and instead he struck the stone. Big problem. Moses, you could have created a real Kiddush Hashem. You could have used this opportunity to show to the people that you follow the word of Hashem precisely and exactly, even when it doesn't make sense to you. And God will provide if you listen to his instructions. But you didn't do that. Instead, you took the manner into your own hand. You did the logical thing, and you struck the rock. So now the people will learn the lesson not via the rock that was spoken, spoken to instead of being bludgeoned. Instead, the people will learn the lesson when they see that the greatest specimen of humanity, the holiest of people, the greatest of prophets, Moshe Rabbeinu Moses, is not going to make it into Israel because he didn't do precisely what Hashem said. Tough lesson to chew on and swallow. If you wanted to talk about that, if you wanted to talk about the notion of God providing for us, why wouldn't he mention the water? And if we're talking about God providing for the Jewish people in an unnatural manner, how about the clouds of glory that protected the people, that created this opaque cover around them until it wasn't there anymore when Aaron died? And Amalek sees and uses it as an opportunity to attack us. I mean, it's not just about food. We're talking about parnasa, we're talking about sustenance. You need water more than you need food. Hydration is even more basic. And you need shelter too. So if this is Rabbeinu Bechaya having to illustrate how God can provide whatever you need, he should have given us the whole, so to speak, temple of schmaltz. Give us, he says, you look in the desert. You had clothes that grew with you. Miraculously, you never had to go shopping. He was the Lord. He was the tailor. Took care of everything. You had food. You had hydration. You had a place to live. Climate control. You had anything you wanted. No, no, it doesn't say that. He like zeroes in on this manna metaphor, leman hadiacha, the second half of the verse. He's not sparing Rabbeinu B'chayah. If he, if he felt there was a need for the earlier part of the verse, he would have included it. So that's what was bothering me. And I said, I don't understand what's going on over here. Why is Rabbeinu B'chayah quoting this verse? Why is he quoting this verse? And then I noticed a couple of interesting things. I want to share them. I want to share them with you. Because this is going to turn the lights on for us. 
Rabbeinu David Kimchi, on the words, Radak, on the words in Deuteronomy, Leil Lechem Levada, he says like this, what God wanted, don't rely on nature itself. Don't say, well, I'm working hard. I'm going through the motions. I'm doing what must be done. Surely that's why I succeeded. Or, I'm a really smart guy. I'm a sharp cookie. I figured this out. That's why I've made it in business. No. That's only the vessel. That's the pipeline. So why did it come your way? Because Hashem wanted it to come your way. He says, Teva Levad, making the pockets alone doesn't mean money falls into them. Having a nice wallet doesn't mean you have the money to spend. Somebody's got to fill a wallet. Teva Levad lo yaspik. Im lo If you don't plug the computer in, it's dead. You got all the plastic and the glass and the metal, it's dead. Because the only way it works is if the juice is going. You can go through all the motions. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not giving you the bracha, you get zero. Sorry, this is not from the Radak. That's from the Mincha Balula. One of the other Rishonim. The Radak says, the Radak says, why do we talk about bread then? If it's true what the Mincha Balulu is saying, that it's not just the idea of what you do, but it's Hashem's bracha, so it's only about bread? It's only about, it's only about one kind of food? No, he says, it's a lashen, it's an expression. And the lashen of lechem is, 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 a, is an expression that we're used to, he says. Hurgula lashen. We use it, a person says, I need my daily bread, not I need my daily macaroni, or my daily steak, or my daily tomato. He says, I need my bread. It's a euphemism. Earning your bread is a euphemism. It always has been. It's Iker Michael. It represents the, the basic carbohydrates, the bottom of the, what they call the pyramid of, 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 of sustenance. But really, it's included, inclusive of all food. And my friends, it's inclusive of all sustenance by extension. So there was a lesson Hashem was trying to teach us. The lesson wasn't that Hashem can do miracles. The lesson wasn't that Hashem is not limited to the natural order. The lesson was that in every situation where Hashem will provide for us, it will be supernatural you just won't notice it because he's covered his tracks consider this Nachmanides Ramban Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman great Rishon he says this was lehoidiyam to make known to them kihu hamachaya ha'adam that Hashem is the one who provides life. Which is a takeoff on the scriptural expression in Nehemiah, Ata Mechayas Kulam. Hu Hashem is the one who provides sustenance. And therefore, if you want to be sustained, and we all do, what should you worry about? 
You should worry about keeping the boss happy. In Cain, he says, Shmur mitzvah Keep his mitzvahs. V'choya, and then you'll live. I'll take you to one more interesting expression, and I'm going to tie it all together. The Sifse Koyen says like this. Why this emphasis, You didn't know it. Your ancestors didn't know it. True, Rabbeinu B'chai doesn't quote this. He says, Ha'avot, the patriarchs, they didn't need the manna. They were refined. They knew that Hashem was their source of sustenance. But the people who left Egypt were not on the same spiritual standing as the people who went into Egypt. And therefore, they needed to learn the lesson they needed to absorb this message in a different fashion. So Hashem educates them, proverbially speaking, for 40 years. Okay, friends. I'm going to put it all together now. I'm telling you right now that as far as I'm concerned, the, the English translation here, the, the annotation is extremely faulty and wanting, and I, I don't think it's right. I don't think that's the pshat. I don't think it gives us pshat. It makes no sense, at least to me. But here's what I think Rabbeinu Bachaya is really saying. And you'll see it. It's going to pull together the things we heard from the Rishonim, the quotes from the Minchablula, the Radak, the Ramban, the Sifzikrein. It's all going to get pulled together. When the Torah first introduces manna, first introduces manna, we're talking now Exodus 16. Hashem says, God uses the words, and I quote, Hinini mamtir lechem min hashemayim. I'm going to rain bread from heaven. And then the people will go out, v'loktu, and they will collect dvar yom biyomo. They'll collect their daily allotment. So the Rebbe asks a very interesting question about this expression that we find in the scripture. I will rain mamtir, from the word matar. The Rebbe, quoting the Talmud, the Gemara in Mesechetanit, page 3, introduces us to this notion of different forms of precipitation. In Torah literature, there's motor or geshem, rain, and then there's tal. Tal is dew. So Hashem says to us, if you will behave badly, I will be angry at you. And if you'll behave badly, what will happen? The otsar et Hashemayim, I will restrain the heavens. There will be no rain. But doesn't say there will be no dew. We believe that rain is the result of our efforts and activities. We bring forth the rain. Hashem responds to us in kind. We do what Hashem wants. We bring forth the gishme bracha, the blessed rains, or the blessings, which are metaphorized as rains. But tal, the expression is, loy miyatsar. Do 
will always do what it does. The dew always comes. Even in a drought, there's still dew. It doesn't do much for you, the dew, by the way, because it's just dew. But it'll always do. Not always going to rain, it's always going to do. Why? What's the, so to speak, theology behind that? Because we believe that everything material is but a reflection of a higher truth. The theology is that what we do has an impact on some level of Hashem's bracha, which means that God responds to us in kind. There's a reciprocal relationship. Whereas sometimes it, it just is. Whether we earn our bread or not, the dew will always be there. It's what's called not tolui, b'maisei ha'odam. It doesn't hinge on the act, on the behavior of people, of humankind. The Alter Rebbe, both in Torah Or, as well as in Lakuta Torah and Parshas Ekev, Torah Or and Parshas B'Shalach, and Lakuta Torah, the Alter Rebbe speaks about this, the notion of manna that fell from heaven with layers of dew. It says there was a layer of dew, and then the manna would fall, and then there was another layer of dew. It was kind of uh, ziplocked. Imagine if you put out a piece of saran wrap, and then you covered it with saran wrap. You sealed the edges. And people would take the first layer of dew would lift with the rise of the sun. They would take the manna, and then the manna weighed nothing. So when the dew evaporated, any leftover manna would evaporate together with the dew. So the Alta Rebbe says that the reason that it's associated with dew is because the manna, the lechem in Hashemayim, was not the result of the efforts of the Jewish people. If you study the Chumash, and I think you should, if you go through the book of Numbers, for example, you will find that the Jewish people sinned grievously to Hashem. They did some awful, terrible acts of rebellion. And yet, we don't hear of a single instance of the manna not falling. Or we hear about when the water dries up, when the well dries up. We hear about the clouds that dissipate. We don't hear the manna ever stop. <laughs> and we know it didn't because of this I am certain. If the manna would not have fallen one day, you would have heard about it. There would have been a kvetching and complaining. Forget about it. So what's going on here? The manna always falls? Al-Tarebbe says, yes. It's like do. It's not, it does not hinge on the zuchut, on the merits of people. Mitzvah merits don't bring it forth. That's rain. Do always does. Do will do as it does. Because it's do.
So the Rebbe says, hey, one second. Assuming this entire thesis is accurate and it sounds great, why does the Torah use the word mamtir, which is a verb for I will rain down the bread? He shouldn't say, I will do the bread. Why, why use the metaphor of rain? Which is, contentfully speaking, entirely other than the character of the manna. The character of the manna is reflected in the character of dew, not reflected in the character of rain. And the Rebbe said something very interesting. Broadly speaking, the manna is like dew. Did anybody have to plant it, weed it, hoe it, work at making the manna arrive? Of course not, it just came. But at the same time, there was some effort that had to be made. For example, you had to gather the manna. That was their daily activity. And even to prepare the manna for consumption, there was method of preparation. People still did something. Not only did something have to be done, but interestingly, despite the fact that we say that the, the manna doesn't reflect merits and efforts, the Gemara Mesechet Yoma on page 75 goes into detail about different kinds of members of Am Yisrael, different kinds of Jews, who had a different kind of manna experience. That the manna fell or arrived in different form. For the tzaddikim, it was ready-made bread. No effort needed to just butter your bread. I'm just kidding. Beninim, it came in these raw cakes. It had to be baked. Roshoyim, <laughs> they had to grind it. They had to, they had to knead it. They had to turn it into something because the Torah gives different expressions. Furthermore, the Gemara says that tzaddikim didn't have to go very far. The manna fell right at the doorpost. Door, at, the, at, the, at their entrance of the little tent. The Bainanim, the average in-betweener people, no, they had to go out. The Rishoyim, the wicked Shatu Vuloktu, they had a journey. They had to go and, so to speak, seek out their sustenance. In other words, there is an element of effort still attached to the manna. There's an element in which who you are and what you do necessarily affects the manner in which those blessings arrive. So it's due, but a little rainy too. The character, broadly speaking, is one of due. But it also embodies, to some degree, the character of rain and the message and the motif, the ideal of efforts and toil and a reciprocal kind of relationship with Hashem. It also reflects that. And the Rebbe says that's why we use the term mamtir lechem min hashamayim. And here the Rebbe says something astounding. The Rebbe says that this whole idea will help us appreciate what we read much later on in our Pasuk. Yeah, Rabbeinu B'chayi's Pasuk. Why, he says. Because what was the deeper message? The deeper message of the Lechem in HaShemayim, and this is a Sicha which is found in Chilik Tezayin. I'm, I'm reading to you from page 176 now. This is just incredible. 
The Rebbe says that this business of the lechem and hashemayim of the bread from heaven is given to the Knesset for needing in Eretz Yisrael. This was what prepared the Jewish people to go into Eretz Yisrael. V'sdart is given the seder from lechem in Oretz. Once you come into the land of Israel, my friends, the free lunches are over. You're not going to be able to have bread that falls from heaven and make hamaytzi lechem in hashamayim. Now you have to work at it. Now everything will become normal. Normal following the guise of nature. So what does Hashem want us to know? The preparation for going into Eretz Yisrael was 40 years in a Sinai sojourn. Why do we need to wander around the desert? I'll tell you why. When Hashem demonstrated to the Jewish people in the most obvious of ways. Vizer panosa unhitstarchos, where their sustenance, where their needs. Verze gegeben nord von den God said, I give you everything. What nature, what work, what, what vehicle, what material did you have to engage in? There were no envelopes that had to be made for your letter to be delivered. It just came. No mechanism of effort and toil was required. What is Hashem doing? Isn't he creating an entitled generation? Isn't he creating a bunch of fat cats who will never work for a day in their life because <laughs> they had it made in the shade? They were in these glorious clouds. Food fell from heaven. Now you expect them to roll their sleeves up and work? But they did. This was a new generation. Oh, did they work? They toiled. They battled for their land. They settled that land. They built that land. They were the pioneers. So Hashem was giving us koyach. This was a preparation. As Hashem wants us to know when we come to a settled land, when we live in a regular normative situation. Is When we go, so to speak, transition into the different order of living, what seems to be a natural order of living. Do not forget for one moment who that it is God and God alone as we read just a few verses later just 15 verses later that it is God alone who gives us the ability to make valor to succeed at what we do it's not ours we don't create success we toil for success. We make the efforts to be able to allow success to come our way. Success is a blessing from God. Always. Oh, it doesn't look that way? Yeah, that's precise, choreographed. It wasn't supposed to look that way. You're supposed to believe it. You need a muna. You need your belief. You need your betochen when it's not obvious. When you can't see it. So for 40 years we saw it, so we would absorb that lesson and we wouldn't forget it. Nachmer, even more so. Lechem in Hashemayim, bread from heaven, is nit blaze hachona. It's not just a preparation. It's not just an asinas koyach, an empowerment. It actually flows into the land of milk and honey. The Baldas Eden seinen Beetzem Heche from Weltenteve because as we have learned multiple times, we are by nature 
otherworldly. We defy statistics. Nature's got nothing on us. Naturally speaking, we shouldn't be here anymore. And as we learned many episodes ago, that idea is inherent to our very definition, to who we are. And that inherent idea of us being otherworldly, of us being able to rise above nature in all times and in every place, that is the truth. That's the emiss. That even when we're in Eretz Neshevis, even when we're living in a land where it looks like natural rules are what rule. But it's not really true. The hashpah, the benefaction that comes our way, the parnasa, the sustenance, is nitfarbundan. It's not really connected to the nature. To the point that the nature or the things we go through, the motions we go through, actually have no influence whatsoever. It's just a superficial glove. It's just an external container. It's a mechanism, an envelope, a verbirches Hashem. Und der levush gufe macht der nor der far. So why do I go to work? Why do I make the efforts? Why am I thinking carefully about which investment to make? That's because azayiz der tzivui Hashem. That's what God commanded, as we learned multiple times. But the hashpah, the blessings themselves, the sustenance itself, the Birchas Hashem comes on mentioned through the Kali Vesaret Sugigrate. The Birchas Hashem, it comes through the vessel you prepare. You prepare a different vessel, so it will come a different way. It's almost like it doesn't make a difference what you do for a living. Whatever business you ended up deciding to go into, so that's the way Hashem decided to give you a living. You want to do a difference, so you do something else. Hashem gives you a different way. It's all coming from God. So the lechem in Haaretz, the lechem, the, gra- the bread that's coming from the ground, is actually coming to us in truth as lechem in Hashemayim. It's nothing to do with nature. It just looks that way. Now listen to this. And this is how I'm so sure I'm right about this. Und das ist der Emes Eschlemus Habitochen. Look at that. The Rebbe is talking about this very verse that Abbein Nebuchadnezzar quotes. And the Rebbe says that this verse embodies the idea of perfect trust in Hashem. This is the Shlemus Habitochen von Eden and Nebuchadnezzar. Nicht nur in Fall. Some people think that trust in Hashem is when everything else bottoms out. When the doctor says, I'm sorry, there's no hope. Can't help you. Medicine has no answer for you. And then the person says, Oh, now I start davening. Wrong, says the Rebbe. Person went bankrupt. He says, Oh, now I start davening. Not so. Betochen is not for desperate situations. 
Betachen is for all situations. It's not only when you have no idea where you'll make a living from that you start to trust in Hashem. Even when you know exactly where your living's coming from, or so it seems, you know the truth that it's coming from Hashem. It's only when you have no choice. Okay, I'm relying on God. Know the Rebbe says. You have a wonderful business. You came up with a great idea. And you're diligent. And you're devoted. And you're committed. You're organized. You get the job done. Because Hashem said you have to make your proper effort. You have to make the right keli. Is this by im upgelake? The person has to know with clarity. And you got to keep reminding yourself. Azayim parnosa is beikra lechem in Hashemayim. It's primarily the manna. Nidgigeben durch darkiyateva. It's not through nature. On the avtocha for noverachtos Hashem lekecha b'chol hashatasa. And so the promise that Hashem makes to you that you will be blessed in all that you do. Maintain it blows. As das was that Abish there benched is be'erech that Hashem will help you as much as you help yourself. If you work hard, so then Hashem will help you a lot. If you won't work so hard, Hashem will help you a little. As the world likes to say, God helps those who help themselves. Or the harder I work, the more the more blessed I became. No, the truth is that it's an eifin of uverachacha, there's a bracha v'hatzlacha that comes from Hashem and from Hashem alone. Hashem says He gives you that bracha and that bracha comes from way beyond anything you and I can do. That's the essence of betochem. And that, my dear friends, is what Rabbeinu Bachaya was telling us. That's what Rabbeinu Bachaya says. He said, this is about the manna. In other words, how is a yid supposed to go to work every day? Calm. No anxiety. No wor- what if you want to make a living? I trust Hashem. What if this doesn't work? Hashem will find a different way. That was the lesson of the manna. This is not an illustration. This is not a proof that God can do as He pleases. Of course God can do as He pleases. The essence, the theme of the manna was that Hashem is our provider, always. And therefore, what do you spend in the small stuff? Relax. You have Hashem at the driver's seat. I didn't say that you should sit back and do nothing. Torah Emet says you need to make the efforts, sincere efforts, real efforts, smart efforts, the best you can do. Put your best foot forward. Hashem says so. Because that's what nature demands. But know at all times that in the end, the bracha of Parnassah is actually mon. And that's exactly Rabbeinu Bachaya's point. This will be continued, Bezrat Hashem, in our next episode. An amazing idea that will continue to develop and unfurl in a way that can so beautifully free us of anxieties and worries, can give us peace of mind, can enable us to serve Hashem b'simcha with joy and glad-heartedness. And it's this kind of faith and this kind of betochen that gets us through the last moments of Golos and will the Mi'erza Hashem spirit us into 
the beautiful new world of Geula with the coming of Mashiach. Bimheira will be Amenu Amen. Thank you so much for joining today.